Now, if you have been following uh, the news recently, then you know, or you may have heard, words like uh, partygate and beergate. Partygate, of course, relates to the Prime Minister having lots of parties, and beergate relates to the leader of the opposition having lots of beers, right? And uh, these words have been on the lips of journalists. It seems that while most of the country was suffering under lockdown, you know, people couldn't visit loved ones in hospital. Um, we couldn't meet as we wanted to meet. Uh, many people were suffering in many ways. People lost jobs, businesses, and that kind of thing. It seems while that was going on, the politicians were literally laughing at us. I mean, literally. They were holding lots of parties, which involves a lot of laughing, and they were drinking a lot of alcohol, which also involves a lot of laughing when you're drunk. They were doing that from Downing Street to Durham. Uh, the behavior of our politicians has annoyed, I think, everyone, really, uh, because there are certain moral standards. We expect politicians to meet while they are in holding public office. That's why we are annoyed. Now, why do we have these moral standards? Why do we have these expectations? Well, we have these expectations because we are made in the image of God. And our sin in Eden has not erased the image of God in us. It has only defaced that image. So there's something about us and our longing to ensure, to see that we are living in a world uh, that has certain moral standards being met. It's not surprising we expect those serving us to have moral standards. Because God, our creator, in whose image we are made, expects everyone who serves him to, have, to meet certain moral standards. What does God expect uh, from us when we serve him? Well, the answer, of course, is in the Bible, isn't it? Now, sometimes the Bible gives us these moral maps, these moral standards that God expects directly. Right? So when we read Titus and First Timothy, we find that Paul, writing there, gives qualifications that elders and deacons and even old ladies, old women, spiritually mature, in the church should have as they instruct younger women. So he gives those, uh, those sorts of qualifications. They are sometimes directly given to us in the Bible for us to learn from. Now, sometimes God actually doesn't give us those direct ones in the Bible. He gives us examples for us to follow, examples to learn from, examples in the lives of his people that shows what the marks of ministry should be, right? And we, have, we are looking at one such example in Colossians 1, verse 24 to 25. Now, Paul wrote this letter 2,000 years ago, right? It was written to the church at Colossae, which was located in the Lycus Valley, where is that today? Well, that is in Turkey, actually. And Paul is writing this letter from Rome, right? He is in prison for telling the people about Jesus, right? But even as he is in prison, the gospel that he has been preaching is still spreading. And it turns out that he has spread to the city of Colossae through a man called Epaphras, who we have already met in verse 7 and verse 8 of Colossians 1. Some people there have now, in Colossae, have become followers of Christ. 
And now Paul is writing this letter to encourage them to continue in their faith. But because Paul has never met these guys, right? He's not just writing to encourage them. He's writing to introduce himself. And so the first message we had in Colossians, we said that Paul is writing like you'd write to a pen pal. Uh, he's, he's saying a lot of things, and some of the things he's saying are actually about himself. And one of the things that we have seen, particularly last Sunday, that Paul says about himself is what sort of minister of the gospel he is. How he looks at uh, what God has called him to do in terms of serving. And so this section teaches us something very important about what true Christian ministry should look like. Now we've widened that, not just to ministers, because last week we said, isn't it, that God, the word minister means servant, right? And God has called all of us to serve him. He has given us gifts, talents, and resources, and he commands us to use these gifts to serve God by serving his church so that the gospel would spread. And so we are looking at this section, and we've called it Max of True Christian Ministry. How are we supposed, what does God expect from us as we serve him in the church here, but not just in the church, but other places God has placed us, at places of work, or other ministries we may be involved in outside uh, outside the church. In the home. It applies there. What are the marks of ministry? Well, we said that we, last week we looked at two marks of ministry. Uh, in the morning we looked at the mark of servanthood. We are meant to be servants. Right? In the evening we looked at the issue of suffering. The second mark is the mark of suffering. We, we learned that God has married suffering and ministry together. You can't have one without the other. This morning, I want us to look at the third mark of true ministry. And it's in verse 25 there of Colossians 1, verse 25. And let me just read verse 24 to 25 there. It's in front of your outline. It says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. We are focusing on verse 25, and we have already looked at this last week, but what I, what the key truth I want us to think about in verse 25 that I think Paul really wants us to learn is this. True Christian ministry is stewardship from God for the church. True Christian ministry is stewardship from God for the church. Paul says in this letter to the Colossians that he's a minister or servant of the church because God has made him one, a steward over the church, of which I became, he says in verse 25, a minister according to the stewardship from God. The original word for stewardship uh, describes someone uh, who has been appointed to manage or take care of the household for someone else. That's what a steward is. They don't own the house. They have been chosen to care for that household. For he's saying, I am not in Christian ministry because I have campaigned for it. No, I am serving God because all of this is God's idea. He appointed me. I didn't appoint myself. I am not a self-made man. 
I am here because God has chosen me to serve him. And I think if we ask Paul for more detail here, he would remind us that before he became a servant of Christ, he actually used to undown Christians. Paul is only doing this because Christ met him on that road to Damascus. He confronted Paul with his sins. He he showed Paul that he was a sinner, right? And he enabled Paul to repent of his sin and put his trust in the death of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. And later we read in in, in Acts that Christ sent out Paul to preach the gospel, And so Paul now, having been saved, having been commissioned to preach the gospel, you can say in verse 25, of which I became, I was made a minister by Christ according to the stewardship from him, from God. Now when Paul says he has stewardship from God, he is saying God has appointed me first and foremost, and he has entrusted me to serve his church on his behalf. When I was a young, when I was young, <clears throat> my father was building a house from the scratch. It was amazing. I've got photos of that. If your brother Rob is interested in these sort of things, he was building a house from the scratch, and uh, it was wonderful. But the house was a bit far. So at the time, we were living in a village. At the time, uh, my dad used to live in a town, a proper house, and then he had a career change. So we ended up in the village. That happens in life. And then while I was in the village, he had to build a house back in the town. Some compound somewhere, right? So we had that wonderful maneuver, right? While I was doing that, the house was a bit farther from the village where we were at. And so what my father had to do was to employ a caretaker. Because there were a lot of people doing stuff. He needed somebody to actually be on the building site as, in effect, on his behalf. The caretaker lived on the plot of land. He, he never did any work on the building itself. His job was simply to ensure that everything on the site was in good order. The caretaker was not the owner. He was not even renting the building site. He was just a steward. Everything on the building site belonged to my father. And Paul is saying here, like, like that caretaker, he's saying, I'm just a caretaker of the ministry. This work, this preaching I'm doing, this laboring, this serving of the saints, it's not mine, he says. It's not even on loan to me. I am just looking after it on behalf of the Lord. I am a caretaker. Why has God made Paul a caretaker? Well, the answer is in 25, isn't it? Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul is saying to the Colossians, I have been entrusted with this ministry, not for my benefit, but for your benefit. God has entrusted me with the ministry of preaching the word of God to you for your full benefit in your Christian life. And I've been commissioned, in fact, I've been commissioned to get the gospel out to you and other churches. Now we'll look at the gospel closely next week as a fourth mark of Christian ministry. But verse 26 to 28 spells it out there. If you read that section, it is the good news of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's good news not just for Jews, but it's good news also for Gentiles. The good news of Christ is that God has come in Christ to pay the price for our sin on the cross in order to give us new life. 
Not just new life independent of God, but to bring us into kononia, fellowship, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we'll look at that closely next week. The point I want you to see here is that the main point Paul is making is that he knows that his life and ministry is a stewardship from God. And he knows that it is for the benefit, not for himself, but for the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, the church. And what Paul is saying here is true of all of us, isn't it? Because all of us are called to serve God as we looked at in First Peter. And we'll look at it in a minute. We said last week that God has given all true followers of Christ at least one spiritual gift to serve him. On top of that, he's given you other talents. And not only talents, he has given you resources. And he has given you the time. And he's calling you to use those gifts as caretakers. To serve in the life of the church and beyond. Not as people who own those gifts, but as stewards. It's amazing, isn't it? When you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, that Peter, the Apostle Peter, says exactly this. 1 Peter 4, verse 10, we looked at it last week. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. How? As good stewards of God's varied grace. Do you see that? Stewards again. The Bible is saying the gifts and ministries we have in the church, uh, we, are, we have in the church, we, we have... Not for the church and beyond the church. And these gifts are not ours. They have been entrusted to us. We are just caretakers. We want these gifts actually on behalf of God's people. Your time is not yours. It's there on behalf of God's people. Your body is not yours. It's there on behalf of God's people. Right? The resources God has given you are not yours. They are there on behalf of the people of God. For the spread and advance of the gospel. The ministries we serve in the church are not ours. They are owned by God. Now, I know many of us know this truth already, and you might wonder, Chola, why do we need to spend the whole sermon looking at stewardship from God, at ministry of stewardship? We have heard it many times. In fact, we think about it in financial terms. Well, actually, that's the reason, you see. <laughs> because we tend to think of stewardship only about money. And I'm sure maybe perhaps when you saw stewardship, you may have talked about many. But actually, stewardship is a Christian life. It is that God has entrusted to us everything. And we are to use everything for his glory. But we know this truth, but we need to hear it again because we forget this truth. We struggle with it. I just want to give you three ways in which we struggle with this truth. The first way we struggle with it is that some of us are not using our gifts from God for the benefit of the church. We know God has given us gifts, talents, and resources for the benefit of his church, but we believe these things are now ours. So we do not use them. Listen, if you own a car, some of you own cars here, most of you own cars here, well, because it's yours, no one can tell you what to do with it. As long as it's legally okay, you know, you've paid your tax. No one can tell you what to do with it. If you decide to clean it up, that's up to you. Right? Some of us don't bother to clean our cars. Why? Because it's ours. Right? Like, like, if you don't like to sit in this car, it's too dirty. Use another one, right? Right? 
unless it's a wife asking us why we haven't cleaned it. In which case, she just said, don't use it. I said, clean that, it's not going anywhere. But because we own it, we can do whatever we like with it. It's no one's business, right? Now, the, child, the problem is that in the heart of hearts, we extend that model to the life of the gifts and ministries God has given us. Many of us think what the gifts we have are none of God's business. Yes, God gave them to me, but it is mine now. It's my skills. It's my time. It's my body, right? Now, I know we never say it like that. We never put it like that, right? But we, we, we put it differently. We say things like, I have a lot on my plate right now. So my gift is not available for the advancement of God's kingdom. We say things like, I'm not ready to serve now. We say things like, I've been hurt too badly in the past. I can't venture more to give myself to the kingdom. Yeah. We have many excuses. But beloved, let us not delude ourselves. All of that is just self-deception. At the root of our failure to use our gifts for God, that God has entrusted to you in your care, for the benefit of his church and beyond, is because you believe you are the owner. We need to be honest with ourselves about this. We think these gifts are ours, not God. Now I just want to say that the Bible warns us that when we behave like that, when we behave like we own the gifts God has entrusted to us, by not using them, God regards that as stealing from him. It's theft. Spiritual theft from God. Because you are not the owner. God is the owner. And the Lord Jesus makes this point in one of his parables. Which you've heard, I'm sure you've read a number of times. It goes like this. A businessman decides to go away on business. Right? So he goes to the office three of his workers. Right? He gives each worker a different large sum of money to manage and invest and multiply. Right? And then what does he do? He goes off on the journey, right? Now, two of the workers immediately get down to the business, right? They start trading and investment, investing. Uh, and, in, and I'm imagining that if they're doing this today, they have definitely avoided the Bitcoin market. They are investing wisely, not in Bitcoins, which are plunging. I think they must be investing in stocks, oil stocks, Russian rubles. You know the Russian ruble is rising. Yeah, they must be investing in that. And so they continue investing. Right? And after a couple of years, it seems they have, the two of them have doubled the initial investment. A staggering 100% profit. The third worker, on the other hand, panicked in year one. Right? Instead of investing the money, he has put the money in a safe place somewhere. He's not doing anything with it. Is not using the gifts and talents that he has been given. And so what happens is that the businessman returns, of course, and is keen to check on his investment. He calls in the employees one by one. The first two can't wait to tell the boss on what they've done. There it is, black and white. They have doubled his money. And the boss, of course, is over the moon. And they get a pay rise and they're given more responsibilities to serve in the firm. Now it's time for the third worker, right? To the shock of the boss, right? The worker says to him, I knew you were out to please, 
I knew you gave me too much to manage, and I was just going to mess it up. So you know what I did? I did nothing with the cash. I just kept it safe, locked somewhere. And of course, the boss is having none of it, right? He's not happy with the servant. Because the servant has acted like, like he, it's up to him what he does. He has not acted as a steward. He has not been, like, here's the point. He has not behaved as the boss would behave if he was risk averse, right? Because if he was risk averse, what he should have done is, according to the boss, he should have put the money in the bank. And there must be banks like, not the, like the ones we've got at the moment. <laughs> this must be government back banks, right? Right? He must have put in the government back bank so that as a minimum, you would get some interest on it. Now listen to me carefully. The words that our Lord Jesus Christ said to, about how the boss reacted to this servant for this terrible thing that the servant had done. And it's in Matthew 25, verse 28 to 30. And so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more, who has, will be given. To, for to everyone who has, will more be given. And you will have an abundance. But to the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. And listen to this. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. That's hell. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we know the boss in the story is God, or Christ himself. And the worthless servant is anyone whom God has given talents and gifts to use for the benefit of the kingdom and does not use them. And that's quite sobering, isn't it? Because of what Jesus says. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be whipping and gnashing of teeth. It sounds almost Armenian, doesn't it? That's worrying. The servant. Right? But we need to be clear here. You are not going to hell for refusing to serve God. But if you are not seeking to serve God, you're most likely going to hell. Do you get that? You're not going to hell for refusing to serve God. But if you are not seeking to serve God, you are most likely on the road to hell. It's not your lack of service that sends you to hell. That's, that's not the point Jesus is making here. Rather, the point the Bible is making is that those who do not serve God and have a desire to serve Him prove that they are not true children of God. Prove they are not servants of God. If you are continuously robbing God of His gifts to you, if you are not interested in growing in service, then there is a clear sign there that you do not really know this God. You do not really love Him. Now this is a hard truth for us to accept. It's a hard truth. But one way we know if we are truly born again, we are truly born of God, we are true Christians, is that we desire to use our gifts and talent for His people. That's how we know. If you continue to refuse to use your gifts to serve God and His church, you are not just being lazy, beloved. You are being satanic. Why do I say that? Because you are doing what Satan does. 
The devil is an expert in taking what belongs to God and declaring it as his. That's what he did with Eve and Adam in the garden. And that's what he's doing all the time. The devil is a liar and a thief. And true children of God shouldn't be like the devil. True children of God live to give God what belongs to God. So let me ask you a question. Are you using your gift or keeping it from the owner? As we sit here, are you treating your gifts and talents as stewardship from God by using them? Or are you keeping them away from their true owner? Do you have a desire to serve God with your gifts and talent where God has placed you? Here, for example. Or are you content to live like Satan? Who is always robbing God wherever he is? You need to examine your heart. Because if we do not have a desire to live for God, it may be that what we need is to have a new heart from God. To be truly born again, beloved. Yes, we've attended church for many years. But if there's no desire there to... If we just come to tick the box and there's no desire to get involved, to serve Him, to use the gifts God has given us. Especially the young people. Here is the test, isn't it? Here is the test. Are we truly converted? I think the answer is no, we are not. Because the moment God converts us, He gives us the passion to serve Him. We do it sometimes, we are constrained in our what we do, but it's there, and we see evidence to live for Him. So the first way in which we struggle with this truth is that we are not using the gifts God has given us to serve Him and wherever God has placed us. The second where most of us struggle with this truth, that we are stewards, not owners of our gifts, is that we've attached our identity to our gifts and ministries. That's the second way we struggle with it. We attach, we serve God, but we come to attach our identity in what we are doing for God. Many of us start with a desire to please God. Then something strange happens. And what happens is that we start taking ownership of our ministries in the life of the church and beyond even the places of work. And I believe it's one of the reasons there is a lot of fighting and disagreements in many churches today. We all want to own what belongs to God. There is a, the, the problem in the church is an ownership problem. The sin in us makes us feel the ministries we are doing are part of us. And so the result is we fight to build up our little kingdom instead of God's kingdom. And we don't have to search far and wide in our own hearts and our own lives to know that this is something that we may be struggling with wherever God has placed us. Because when we attach our identity to what we are doing or the gifts God has given us, right? There's a way we behave. First of all, we become very controlling, aren't we, about those things? Because they're our babies. When family is our identity, we can stifle the children and make it harder for them to thrive. When our wife is our identity, then we want to ensure that the wife is there and we order the wife around. And the husband, of course, 
gifts, can, these things that we attach our identity to, and the sign that we attach our identity to them is that we are controlling about them. And the other way we see that we are attaching identity to those things is that we lack accountability. This is especially the case in ministry. The sin in us opposes us being accountable to someone else. Why? Because accountability is a threat to what we owe dear. If I'm accountable and they don't agree with me, then I'm not really going to be, it's not going to work for me. So what we do is we are not accountable to anyone. When we treat our ministry friends like an extension of us, we do not like people to correct us in some way. When the preacher treats his preaching as an extension of him, he doesn't want anyone even on the pulpit. <laughs> he doesn't want anyone to speak something different that will perhaps correct the preacher. We don't like correction when, we are, uh, when, we, when, we, when we've attached our identity to something. Because, it's, you, know, you know, the problem is, it feels like when people correct us, they are questioning who we are. Because we have wrapped up our identity in that area, when somebody questions something about that thing we have wrapped our identity in, it feels like they are questioning us, aren't they? It's like an attack on us. When all they are doing is perhaps giving us genuine feedback on how we are doing. You see, when we forget that our ministries are owned by God, we are willing to sacrifice our health and our our spiritual health and our physical health to maintain control of things. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, we've done Mark, and Jesus says, if anyone must come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. So the way of the cross is a way of sacrifice. But what I'm saying is that often when we attach our identity to, to our ministries or something that we're doing, we there are warning signs God gives us to say, slow down, this is damaging your health, or this is damaging you spiritually. But we never stop. What, what may appear like hard work, and we'll be looking at hard work next week, may actually simply be idolatry. And I have to remind myself of this. This is an area I struggle with, and I have to remind myself of this. Why am I working hard? Is it because I've attached my identity to these things, or I'm really serving him? We need to ask ourselves that. As parents, we must ask ourselves that. It's good to work for our children flat out. It's good to work for our spouses to please them. But are we doing that because we find our identity in that rather than Christ? That's the question. And of course, the real test of how we feel about our ministry is revealed when we are not able to do the ministries anymore for some reason. When the pastor can no longer preach how is he? Is he grumpy? Has he lost joy? When we are sick and we can no longer perhaps take on something that we really enjoy, how are we? Or perhaps when something we enjoy in the life of the church is taken away from us because somebody else perhaps has been raised to serve, to grow in that area. How do we react to that? That's the real test of our heart. How are we when we have lost something? And beloved, we never know that. I will never know whether this pastoring you has been an idolatry until the moment comes when I can no longer do it. 
Just a reality. Because it's that moment when the idolatry of our heart is revealed. Because what I've seen is people often lose their joy. They start feeling empty. They become bitter. People who are previously nice could turn very nasty. Because they feel like something has been stolen from them. We feel like that because our gifts and ministries, which are owned by God, have now become our identity rather than resting our identity in Christ. Now, it is not a surprise that when we do work for God, we find ourselves attaching our identity to that thing. I'm not surprised by that. I recognize why that happens. Because it, because it, it happens because, you see, in the course of us putting our blood, sweat, and tears in any work we are doing, we genuinely fall in love with that work, right? And we love doing it. And the more we do it, the more we sacrifice for it. But the problem is that the more we sacrifice for something, the more we feel it's ours. This is the irony. This is the challenge. Oh, it's so hard. I feel this. But Paul is reminding us that regardless of how much I or you will sacrifice for God. It's not yours. It's not yours. God doesn't owe you anything. You have only done what God has commanded. All of it still belongs to God. The church is not some sort of... Um, the work of God is not some sort of... Um, these companies where you buy some stocks and you're part of the company, you know, you, you know, you know you're, we're not Elon Musk, right? Uh, or, 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 or even those companies where the manager somehow has stock options. In the, that's not the case. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And all of us must remember that this church is not ours. We are just the latest in the long line of caretakers. God has raised to do his work. A long line. And for this church, it goes back 200 years. You are not the first to do street evangelism. You are not the first to lead the men's fellowship. You are not the first to do Sunday school. You are not the first to do women's ministry. You are not the first to clean this church. Hey, you didn't even build the church. We are just one in the long line of caretakers. Others far better than us, more holy than us, have served this church. I've read the minutes. I've read the minutes. It's humbling. A time is coming when we shall not even be here if the Lord tarries. We are exiles and sojourners. We cannot afford to claim ours what belongs to Christ. Oh, beloved, this is true of any blessing God has given you. Your husband is not yours. I have to repeat that. He belongs to God. Your children are not yours. They belong to God. Your job is not yours. I know your contract of employment says it's yours, but spiritually it's not yours. God has given it to you as a gift. Not to own, but to be a steward. I wonder, is there a ministry in the church or outside or some area of your life where it's costing you a lot at the moment? Are you sacrificing a lot? Are you enjoying what you're doing for the Lord? But whatever it is, praise the Lord for your service. I encourage you as someone who loves you, as someone who has his own temptations, 
and faces his own dangers in ministry, in serving God in many areas, as a husband, as a father, and as a pastor, I encourage you, beloved, please never steal what belongs to Christ. Do not be a thief from the Savior who bled and died on that cross for you. So examine your heart this morning. Where are you attaching your identity to ministry? And come before God honestly and say to God, Lord, I desire to serve you. Please show me where I am in danger of robbing you for your glory. The third way, and I'll be quick. The third way some of us struggle with this truth is that we are stewards. We struggle with this truth that we are stewards, not owners. Is that we are just not serving as faithfully as we should. It's not that we have an identity problem with our ministry. It's just that we are lazy, perhaps. We are not as devoted as we should. Because, you see, when we have a steward mentality, we, sh- we should expect the kind of fruits in our lives that we actually expect of elders. Do you know that? When you are being as a steward in your life, you should expect to be serving as you would expect church elders to serve. Titus 1, verse 7 to 8 says this, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, he must not, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. How many of us have read that passage and said, Wow, praise the Lord, this is not for me. Well, it is for you. Because if you're a steward, this is a standard you must look at. Notice, it is because the elder is a steward, that is why he's meant to be like that. In other words, we are not being stewards if we are not doing those things. Are you serving in some capacity in the church or elsewhere? Well, this morning, take a look at this list and examine your standards of service. Are you arrogant and unwilling to be held to account by other people? Are you a person who is prone to anger? Are you greedy for recognition, not just money? Are you a person who is searching for a limelight? Do you always want to be the center of attention? Do you lack devotion and discipline in your life? Do you lack self-control? Can you be described as holy and upright? Well, that's the standard, isn't it, of true stewardship. Paul's example in this passage is challenging, isn't it? It's challenging as the true Christian ministry honors God and we honor him as a faithful steward from God for the church. Uh, it's humbling and painful for us to understand that we are not owners of our lives, gifts and ministries. That we are simply caretakers. It's humbling, it's painful. But we need to believe this truth. And we need to ask God to help us serve him with the, uh, with the humble recognition that everything we do in our lives does not belong to us. It belongs to God. We need to believe this truth because when we believe that, it brings glory to God, doesn't it? But we also need to believe that because it is good for us. It is who we are. We are just stewards. You know, this truth is meant to free us from the bondage of living a self-centered life. It is meant to free us from the prison of, of, of worshipping ourselves. It's, it's, it's hard to worship yourself. How do you keep that up? Because you always find imperfection in your own objection, you know, in the, the object of worship. No, this truth is freeing us from that. We have to worship God. We have to live for Him. 
You know, when we become the center of our ministries, it destroys our lives, it destroys our family. It dis- above all, it destroys the work of God. And beloved, remember this. God will not bless anyone who robs of him, who robs him of his work. God will not bless our work for him if we want to be the center of attention, if we are claiming ownership of what belongs to him. And the proof of that is just read Malachi, friends. Read the book of Malachi. Because that's the indictment. This, that shows us what God thinks of those who rob him. But when we believe we're simply stewards, oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? When we, when we give up ownership, it floods our hearts with peace, doesn't it? We have no reason to worry about our work for God. We have no reason to worry about our families. We have no reason to worry about our work. Because we recognize all of these things are His, and we are just stewards. And so when we pray, we are going to the owner, right? It's like the caretaker going to my dad, saying, there's something wrong with the plot of land. Can you do something about it, right? And my dad was always very eager to do something about it. Because it was his plot of land. And so when we recognize that God owns everything, and we go to him, we say, Lord, do something about this. God will listen. Why? He loves to listen. Because it's his, right? He will never leave us hanging, as it were, because it's his. And so when we find ourselves struggling to serve him, there's no reason to give up, isn't it? Because God is available to help us, and he'll help us to succeed in that area for his glory alone. And so this frees us, it gives us peace, it gives us joy, right? To serve, it's exciting to serve when we hand it over to him, because it doesn't depend on us. And even if it's taken away from us, we still... By illness or whatever may happen, we still say, praise the Lord. It was an opportunity to serve you just for that short bit of time. And Lord, I'm ready, I'm waiting for the next opportunity that you have for me. And I thank you for the humbling process that has been, and I'm ready now to go for you afresh. So we never let the past hold us back for serving forward. And more than that, we know the only reason we have this stewardship from God is not simply because God is the owner. It's because the Lord Jesus died on that cross to make us children of God. I just want to end with a final question, isn't it? Have you heard of David Livingstone? David Livingstone. No? Well, I have. Every Zambian has heard of him. He was a Scottish explorer and missionary. A man of God. As a student in Zambia, I had to study, and he's still in the curriculum, I had to study the three missionary journeys of David Livingstone. It is part of the Zambian school curriculum. David Livingstone spent three years traveling through Africa. This is the hero of Mungo Park and others. He traveled through Africa. And of course, he came to Zambia. And I, I believe he named the Tanganyika uh, Mozotunia Victoria Force. So he left that legacy of changing his name, um, which we enjoy. It's been good marketing. Uh, using Victoria Force after Queen Victoria, of course. Um, David Livingstone endured a lot of suffering as he labored to share the gospel and pave the way for evangelizing Africa by other missionaries. You know, David Livingstone once said this, and I just want to leave you with this quote. He said this, People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can we call a sacrifice which is simply acknowledging a great debt we owe to our God. 
a debt we can never repay. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, foregoing the common conveniences of this life. David Livingstone says, this may make us pause and may cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this be only for a moment. So he acknowledges, there are times when we pause, but let it just be for a moment. Don't stay there. Because all of these things are nothing compared with the glory which shall later be revealed in and through us. And then he says this, I never made a sacrifice for Christ. We can never talk about sacrifices when we remember the great sacrifice which Christ made for us. He left his father's throne on high to give himself for us, says David Livingstone. He's reminding us that when we remember that Christ died for us, we renounce ownership of our lives, our gifts, our ministry. We serve God as his stewards, not only because he owns our ministries and our lives, but also because he owns our new life by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Well, may the Lord help each one of us to serve as good stewards for the benefit of his people. In this church, in your homes, in your families, and wherever God has placed you. Amen.